want to say it is a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to be among God's people. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet with you here this morning. You know, humanly speaking, there's few things on earth more powerful than the USS Theodore Roosevelt. It's a nuclear-powered Nimitz-class aircraft carrier that's pretty much the closest thing the U.S. has to a Death Star. (laughs) According to Wikipedia, it took three years to put together. It cost $4.5 billion. The ship displaces over 100,000 tons, and it's over 1,000 feet long. To get an idea of scale, if right this very second we were sitting on the bow of the ship, for you land lovers, that's the front... The stern would be touching Route 7. Furthermore, the ship is home to more than 5,500 service members and around 90 aircraft, making it an enormous force to be reckoned with. Now, what do you imagine? You're standing ashore on a dock somewhere, watching out for this monster vessel to make its way into port. And sure enough, way, way out on the horizon, there it is steaming towards you. And as it slows down and turns into the harbor, you met by tugs and shore crews, you're simply amazed. Amazed that such a massive ship appears to be so marvelously under control. All that weight, all that size, all that firepower, and it just, just slides right up it to where it belongs. Now, you might be inclined to praise the captain or the helmsman, and certainly they are Fantastic sailors. But you probably wouldn't think to thank our own Damien Bowman. You see, something very important happened while the ship was making its way closer to port. For a bit, Damien, not the helmsman, was piloting the ship. You see, Damien was one of the members of the ship's company, and his role, among other things, was to maintain the mechanisms that controlled the rudder. And every time the ship was making its way to port, Damien and his team would perform swing checks to make absolutely sure the ship was under control before it approached land. You see, all that power, all those years of building it, all those people on board, all those weapons wouldn't matter a bit if the USS Theodore Roosevelt plowed into shore. Given our passage in James today, isn't it ironic that the quote, President Theodore Roosevelt is most known for is speak softly and carry a big stick. The USS Theodore Roosevelt is, in fact, a very, very big stick. But all that power without steady control would just be a disaster. This morning, James is going to warn us that our tongues are incredibly powerful, capable of untold destruction. He's going to remind us that our words reveal the realities of our hearts, and it's only through the far greater power of the gospel that we can keep our tongues under control. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me over to James and chapter 3. If you're using the blue Bibles um, in the seats right in front of you, you can find that on page 1012. James chapter 3 for our text this morning. says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, 
For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray once more and just ask for God's blessing in the reading of his word. Our Father God, Lord, we are so thankful and grateful this morning. We are here as a people called out unto yourself, meeting in this local body here at Redeeming Grace Church. We ask that you would send your spirit to do his good work, work in our hearts, that we would hear and understand what you'd have for us this morning. Amen. Our passage opens in verse 1 with an admonition not to enter into the ministry of teaching lightly. As we'll see through the rest of the text, the tongue, which serves as a reference for speech, is both unbelievably powerful and unusually hard to control. For this reason, ministries that rely on the spoken word, word, like teaching, for example, pose unique risks for the speaker. First of all, it's way too easy to fall into hypocrisy while endeavoring to teach others. We live in an age where political hypocrisy has been the norm. From mask mandates to travel restrictions, our government officials often find themselves on the wrong end of a camera which exposes their do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do mentality. But that is not to be the case within the church, as we'll find out more in a moment. So aside from blatant hypocrisy, there's also the obvious concern of spreading a false gospel. This past week, I had the opportunity to attend a preaching seminar down in Boston. And I have to admit, I came back with a much, much greater understanding of the kind of careful work that needs to go into teaching any passage of Scripture. It takes careful work to do it right, even when our motives are good. Needless to say, it would be easy to get it wrong, either through negligence or outright evil intentions. One way or another, passages like Galatians 1 warn teachers of the condemnation that comes from expressing things contrary to the gospel. What we say matters. Which brings us to the phrase, 
judged with greater strictness here in verse 1. I believe that this brings into view not only the ease at which we can sin while speaking with both hypocrisy or false teaching, but also the ramifications sinful speech can have to the audience listening. Here James is saying that as I stand here right now, I'm not just responsible for me, but also for the effect my words may have on all of you. It's a sobering thought. And one that's designed to impress on teachers, whether in foundations, awana, live course seminars, or behind this pulpit, the gravity and responsibility that God places on us. Now, you might be inclined to think that this passage is going to be all about teachers, and therefore that it may not apply to you. But if we stopped there, then we'd be entirely missing the point. Here, James is addressing not teachers per se, but his brothers, some of whom might want to become teachers one day. He's addressing the same audience as the rest of the book, which BJ showed us several weeks ago was initially the dispersed church of Jerusalem, but ultimately that expands to the universal church dispersed throughout all ages. It expands to us here this morning. So if verse 1 is to be viewed as an example rather than the main point of our passage, we have to keep reading to find it. Fortunately for us, we don't have to read very far because the main point can be readily found in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. The main point is this. Genuine faith, and we're going to talk about what that means in a moment, controls the tongue. Verse 2 says this. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The first thing to notice is the continuing practicality of James's teaching. He starts off by confessing right along with his readers that we all stumble, which is just another word for sin. And in so saying, he sets a realistic expectation for his readers. Christians, while absolutely empowered to live a transformed life through the promise of a new heart, often sin anyways, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And this really shouldn't surprise us, as it's echoed elsewhere in Scripture, like over in John 1.10, which says, if we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. Furthermore, it honestly rings true when compared with our own experience. But while this is a true observation, that we all sin, James keeps going and says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So what's the deal with this? Is James just telling us that we all sin, And if we somehow managed not to, we'd be morally perfect, able to exercise complete control over all our actions. I don't think so. You see, the word perfect in verse 2 is the same Greek word that's translated perfect way back in chapter 1, verse 4. When it said, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Back when BJ covered that portion, he reminded us that perfect there was referring to maturity, not moral perfection. And the same is true here in chapter 2, verse 2. It's using the same word. Now, sometimes I find it helpful to use synonyms to help me understand scripture. So here goes. Verse 2 could, I believe, be said this way. For we all sin in many ways. And if anyone does not sin with his tongue, he is a mature Christian, able also to control or direct his actions. You see, as I said a moment ago, I don't believe James has moral perfection in mind here. Rather, verse 2 provides us with another example of what mature Christianity looks like, i.e., it's hallmarked by those who admittedly are not morally perfect in practice, but are actively and relentlessly striving to bring every aspect of their lives under the authority of the gospel until one day in heaven, moral perfection will be fully and finally realized. James is saying that Christians who, by God's grace, take on their tongues with that level of relentless, steady control will find that they are able to exercise control over every other aspect of their lives. Now, before we move on, I want to make one one quick clarifying point. Spiritual maturity, from chapter 1, verse 4, and here in 2, 2, True faith, in chapter 2, pure religion, in 126, are all being used in the book of James to describe exactly the same thing. That is the regular experience of regular Christians on a regular basis. James is not preaching to some Ivy League, SEAL Team 6 super-Christians. Rather, he's carefully laying out the reality of what it looks like to be a Christian. Every believer strives against sinful speech. Every believer demonstrates the reality of their faith by their works. Every believer will endure and be steadfast in trials, etc., etc., etc. James is setting the expectation of what it means to truly look like a Christian. And once again, in doing so, he's speaking directly to all of us here. So why is it that Christians are called to control their tongues? Why, do we need to, why does it need to be done in the first place? Because our tongues are outrageously powerful. Let's go ahead and read verses 3 through 5. Look back at your passage, verse 3 through 5. It says this, If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Here James uses a couple metaphors, or pictures, that really work to get the point across that the tongue is disproportionately powerful. Here he says it's like the bit that directs a horse, or the rudder that steers a ship. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, don't get tripped up by the word boast here. It's actually using the word in a positive sense. It's saying what the tongue says it can do, it actually has the power to pull off. So we see the effects of the tongue shown in the horse's movement and the ship's direction are huge. 
The first half of Proverbs 18.21 puts it this way when it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So hear me on this. The words we speak are incredibly powerful. When used righteously, they can encourage, they can build up, they can restore. However, if our speech is used sinfully, it will cause unbelievable destruction, both to ourselves and those around us. Now, you may be wondering just how big a problem sinful speech really is. I mean, does James, way back in the first century, actually think it's all that big of a deal for us to click like or thumbs up another person's mildly offensive post? Or how about when we start virtue signaling with a quick one-liner that knocks someone else down a notch or two? For that matter, we could ask about the damage we cause others when we only post perfect, Pinterest-worthy pictures of our family online. Telling the subtle lie that we've got it all together and setting an impossible bar for others to follow. Are we really to believe that James thinks these tiny, itsy-bitsy expressions of sinful speech are actually all that big of a problem? This section is going to answer that question. Let's jump in halfway through verse 5. It says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Notice here that James is completely done messing around. He doesn't start off saying the tongue is like a fire, as he did with a horse and the ship. No, here he gets right down to business. He says the tongue is a fire. He's not trying to direct our thoughts to how nice it is to have a perfectly controlled fire glowing in your pellet stoves at home. Rather, he wants to direct our attention to what we saw in the news last summer when forest fires were ripping through massive tracts of the West, consuming everything in their path. Imagine what it must be to wake up to a fire so big that the entire horizon is glowing like a furnace, and the sky is blotted out by smoke. That's exactly what James wants us to envision when we think of the disaster caused by sinful speech. From there, it only gets worse. James goes on to tell us that the tongue is channeling a world of unrighteousness, that it corrupts our own bodies, and everything we do is scorched by it. And just like the Olympic torch carries the eternal flame, this particular fire comes straight from hell. At this point, you may be wanting to come up for air and say, yeah, But James just told us that we're supposed to control our tongues, right? Can't I just overpower it and control it on my own? The answer in our passage is a resounding no. Read verse 7 and 8 with me again. It says this, For every kind of beast and bird, 
of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. You see here the impotence of fallen man to combat sin. If you remember all the way back in the garden, God commanded Adam and Eve to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here, James acknowledges that mankind has done just that. But he summarizes his point when he says, but no human being can tame the tongue. We're simply not strong enough on our own to get it done. We might think we have licked it for a time, but it is a restless evil. It's not a tame animal we can work with. It's a forest fire out to destroy us and everything in its path. Up until now, James has largely been describing the tongue using metaphors or pictures and vivid imagery. But what is he actually getting at? What does it physically look like to lose control of your tongue? Well, verses 9 and 10 will give us an example. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 9, where it says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So far, throughout the book of James, he has absolutely railed at the idea of disingenuous belief. He brings it up with a need for steadfastness way back in chapter 1. With faith and doubting in 1.6. Self-control versus anger, hearing versus doing, pure versus worthless religion, partiality versus love, and finally, last week, faith without works. A sinful tongue can flip-flop back and forth in the blink of an eye. It's like when there's an argument at home. I don't know if any of you have done this. This has happened to me. You're having a discourse with your wife. And it's a heated argument, and it sounds a little like this. Yeah! And then the phone rings, and you go, ring, 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 ring. Oh, BJ. Oh. Oh, yes, absolutely, sir. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, bless you, sir. Yes, of course I will. Click. Ah! The phone rings, and all of a sudden, all of our sinful speeches, all blessings and rainbows, right up until we hang up the phone. And then we're back right where we started. Think about it. We're all here this morning, gathered together as a church to worship God. We're here to study his word and to build one another up. We just sang songs to his glory a few minutes ago. I was moved to tears by the song for Jerusalem. And in a few more moments, we will collectively take the Lord's Supper, remembering that Jesus shed his precious blood so that we could be saved. Right here, right now, we're all blessing God. We're all saying the right words to all the right things. The question is, 
what will we turn around and say to and about the people in this room right now? Now stay with me for a second, because I want to emphasize an important distinction. When James is talking about cursing people who are made in the likeness of God, he's absolutely referencing the creation of mankind. But we have to ask ourselves whether the entirety of the book of James is primarily concerned about our interactions with mankind out there, or whether he's concerned with our interactions with mankind in here. Thinking back, who were the orphans and widows at the end of chapter 1? They were the orphans and widows in the church. And who were the poorly clothed and hungry in chapter 2? They were the poorly clothed and hungry in the church. So who do you suppose the people being cursed were? They were the people in the local church. They are the people who are sitting in the seats next to you. They're the people who are out there watching your little ones in the nursery. They're the people who lead your youth group, vacuum the floors, scrub the toilets, serve as elders and deacons. They're the people who preach to you every Sunday. They are each and every one of us in this building this morning. We are the people a sinful tongue is busy cursing while supposedly blessing God. And what does that look like, you might ask? It looks like using our tongues to harm our fellow believers rather than build them up. It looks like choosing not to thank your nursery staff for selflessly serving you so that you could focus on the meeting, which causes them to think twice about doing it again. It looks like grumbling to others here about our church ministries and those who serve in them. It looks like spending any amount of time at all criticizing the way a member of this church serves, looks, attends, acts, or speaks without spending even one second going to that person and telling them how much you love and appreciate them. It's when we say something judgmental, like, well, they really aren't doing a good job with their kids. Or, if he handled his money better, he wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Or even insidious little things, like nobody cares about me. Or I'm not part of the in crowd. Brothers and sisters, words like this are so unbelievably destructive to the health of our church. And completely disingenuous with our professions of faith. So much so that James concludes in verse 10 with, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Or in other words... Hey, professing believers, knock it off. And why? Because this type of behavior is totally out of step with your profession of faith. Because it points to a much bigger problem than just what we say. It points to the problem of who we are. Look down at verses 11 and 12, which complete our passage this morning.
James chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 says this. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I hope you're still all with me this morning. Because this is the real problem. You see, the content of our speech comes from somewhere. It comes from our spiritual hearts. And when James asks these questions, he's expecting no for an answer to each and every one of them. Can one spring produce fresh water and salt water? No. Can fig trees grow grapes? No. Can grapevines grow figs? Nope. Can a stagnant dead salt pond yield fresh water? No. Hear me here. Can an unbelieving, unrepentant heart control the words that pour out of it and genuinely love and bless God? No. No, it absolutely can't. Turn with me over to the book of Matthew in chapter 12. Let's go over to Matthew in chapter 12. The book of Matthew in chapter 12, and we'll pick up in verse 33. It says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person, out of the good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then if you're still in Matthew, flip over just a couple pages over to chapter 15. Same topic, we'll just flush it out. Here we go. Matthew 15, we'll look at verses 18 through 20. It says... But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. At this moment, I'm going to take just a moment to speak directly to this room and those in this room who aren't Christians, as well as those in this room whose hearts may be lying to themselves, as evidenced by blessing God when you're here and then turning around and giving full vent to an unrighteous tongue day after day, week after week, month after month, with absolutely no end in sight. Every person ever born on this planet was born with a stagnant salt pond for a heart. 
Nothing grows there. Nothing is alive there. And everything that comes from it is tainted by it. Dear friend, you are in an absolutely hopeless position. Your spiritual heart is dead and only death flows out of it. Your flaming tongue that was lit by the fires of hell is on its way back where it came from. The Bible says in Revelation 20, if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. My unbelieving friends, listen carefully. Because what you decide to do with the next few moments may well determine where you spend eternity. Everyone who is spiritually dead when the last judgment comes will spend an eternity in hell. Only those whose names are written in the book of life are spared. You need to be spiritually alive. Which means you need a whole new source of life. Listen to these words in John 7. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, Jesus is the source of living water. And right now he's standing up and crying out with a voice loud enough for everyone on earth to hear him. I can change you. I can take away the cesspool of sin out of your heart and replace it with pure, clean, life-giving water that flows from a river that never ends. And the only thing you need to bring to the table is thirst. To thirst is to acknowledge that what you have now isn't satisfying. Which causes you to reject it and to come to Jesus for a drink. To thirst and to come is to repent and believe. My unbelieving friends, you need to repent of your sins. Which means forsaking both your sinful past and your present efforts to clean yourself up. They've never truly satisfied you. And you need to believe that Jesus willingly accepted the punishment of death for your sins. He's never, ever pushed anyone away who came to him. He died. He was buried And he came back to life, proving that he can do exactly what he said he can do. He can give new life to spiritually dead hearts. He can give new life to you right now. If you will but repent and believe. If you have questions about this, please sit down with our pastors. Talk to our elders. Talk to your parents. Talk to any of us here who are Christians. And we would be overjoyed to walk you through these things. Absolutely nothing could be more important for you right now because right now 
Jesus is offering you a drink. Finally, my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's an admonition for us here as well. Way back up in verse 2, I made the case that spiritual maturity is not the next rung of your spiritual ladder, but rather is defined in Scripture as an individual who, by God's grace, constantly strives to bring all aspects of their life under the authority of God's Word until perfection is fully and finally realized one day in heaven. Don't give up fighting sin. Don't give up striving for control of your speech and using its tremendous power to genuinely bless God and demonstrate love for others. In doing so, you are simply bringing your words and actions into genuine alignment with your pure spiritual hearts. Husbands, how do you speak to your wives? Do you treat them with love, dignity, and respect as God's gift to you made in his image? Wives, how do you speak to your husbands? Do you treat them with love? Do you treat them with dignity? Do you treat them with respect as God's gift to you made in his image? Does the way we talk about each other change when other people are around? Perhaps even better yet, how do you talk about your spouse when they're not around? Parents, are we communicating righteously with our children? Or are we just a tinderbox of words waiting to ignite every time they step out of line? How are we doing as a church speaking to one another? Are we using our words to build one another up? To build one another up? And help each other walk the path to heaven together? Or do we pass judgment on one another by speaking critically with no intention to help? Merely so we can feel better that we said it. Are we, through our words on any number of digital platforms, striving to edify and to build one another up? Or is it just a venue for us to lie about how great our lives are and virtue signal to the hurt of others? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Yes, all Christians do sin, but all Christians are actively engaged in the struggle against it not just passively letting it go on and on and on. We need to repent of our sinful speech. I need to repent of my sinful speech. And God promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid the punishment for what you did yesterday, today, and what you will do tomorrow. And while ultimate freedom from the presence of sin will only be ours on the other side of eternity, strive to sound like who you are. A mature believer 
whose heart is a spring of pure living water, destined to one day return to its source. Our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for all eternity in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father God, Lord, we are a humble people before you this morning. We are a humble people because besetting sins and the effect of sin is all too real among us. It's all too real among me. And yet, Father, you have just been so gracious through the death and burial and resurrection of your Son on our behalf. You have created in us, through your Spirit, a pool of living water, and you extend that to every single person here today who does not currently have it. Father, touch our hearts. Send out your Spirit to do his good work. And may we be encouraged to come to you for a drink. Amen.